Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Jesus being lifted up on that cross, Father forgive them, they know not what they do. Man, that is the most inclusive opportunity and offer ever made. Father forgive them, how many? All of them. And here's the bottom line, Jesus died that all men might be saved, and no one will be cast out. Today we begin a new message from Pastor Sam entitled Forgiven. We take up in Matthew 12 starting in verse 15 and over the next several verses we see Jesus' replies to the Pharisees' plan to destroy him and their accusations that he is healing with the power of Satan. But amongst this growing resistance, Jesus continues to do what Jesus does, teach and forgive. Matthew 12, we're picking up at verse 15, the title of our message is Forgiven. John tells us in the third chapter of his gospel that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. We're going to find some very similar encouragement today in our passage, but you need to know, in spite of the fact that Jesus came, lived among us, tempted in all ways, yet without sin, died a substitutionary sacrifice, shedding his blood, nailed to a cross for us, died, buried, rose again the third day, ascended into heaven, promising to yet come again and receive us unto himself that where he is, we will be also. In spite of all of that, some will tragically still fail to connect with him, fail to give their lives to him, fail to trust in him. You see, he says he didn't come to condemn, but there still remains condemnation. And this is what John goes on to tell us. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world, but men love darkness more than light. Neither would they come to the light lest their deeds be exposed as evil. See, that's the ultimate tragedy, that none need perish. That none need go into a Christless eternity. But multitudes will. Not because God didn't provide, but because they won't repent. Well, there was a conflict that arose in the earlier part of chapter 12. And for context's sake, that conflict had to do with Jesus breaking, well, not God's laws concerning the Sabbath, for he was the author of them, no, he broke man's traditions in regards to the Sabbath. And some of the things that men had come up with and ideas that they'd formulated, well, just bizarre. And, and we covered that ground last time. Tapes are available if you want to get a tape and check it out. But in the midst of their accusations, Jesus made a couple radical claims. And he said that, he was greater than the temple. Now, to them, the temple was everything. That's the place where sacrifices were made. That's the place where they connected with God. And he says, there stands one here greater than the temple. And then he claimed to be Lord even of the Sabbath. Well, this pretty much flipped them. And it brought us to the climax there in verse 14 of chapter 12, or here in verse 14, since we're here. Then the Pharisees went out and took counsel against him how they might destroy him. That was the climax to this conflict. Now, here's the 
real irony of all of this. They had decided that Jesus healing on the Sabbath was a capital crime, but they were perfectly comfortable getting together to plot his murder, his demise, his crucifixion, as it were, on the Sabbath day. So doing good on the Sabbath, well, they have problems with it, but doing evil on the Sabbath, well, they had no problem with that. Well, that brings us to a very important question then, and it's the question that's answered for us in the first few verses of this passage. Because men's opinions and ideas about Jesus will vary. What does God say about his son? What does the father have to say? Well, pick up with me here in verse 15. Jesus, knowing what was going on, withdrew from there. Multitudes followed him and he healed them all. And he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah, the prophet saying, now this is the father speaking of the son, behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. The father wasn't stumbled by the son's activity on the Sabbath. Why? Hey, Jesus did always those things that pleased the father. So if he was ministering or healing or whatever he was doing, the father was, yes, why? Jesus wasn't working independently of the father. He was working in perfect unity and purpose with the father and with the Holy Spirit because he goes on to say, I will put my spirit upon him. There at the baptism, we saw this same reality of the Trinity as the father speaks from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. When the Spirit descends in in the form of a dove, that was really for John the Baptist, um, for his seeing and and recognizing, because he had been told, the one upon whom the Spirit descends and remains, he'll be the anointed one. He will be the Messiah. He'll be the Savior. And so, Father speaks from heaven, Spirit descends, Jesus there, being baptized by John. Now the Father again says, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. And I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. Jesus is not only independent, or not independent, excuse me, from the Father, but dependent on him and in perfect unity with him. But Jesus was inclusive in his ministry. Now, there are a lot of people today that claim that conservative Christianity is exclusive and that that we try to shut people out. We draw a narrow circle or a small circle and say, well, if only this and then. But see, that isn't how it is. Christianity is open armed. It's a whosoever will come opportunity. But but here's the deal. It's not that men can't come or aren't invited. The Bible says they love darkness, as I already shared. And they continue in the darkness because, well, that's their decision. That's their choice. And it's their right. God allows it. God actually says, all right, you want to live in darkness? Well, he, he does pursue. And here's my point. That Jesus came to draw all men to him. He says, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. Now, some misunderstood that and wrote some songs about lift them up, lift them up. But it was talking about the cross. And when you get that, the songs seem a bit inappropriate. Lift them up, lift them up. Now, I don't think we want to sing lift them up. But we want to realize Jesus being lifted up on that cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Man, that is the most inclusive 
opportunity and offer ever made. Father, forgive them. How many? All of them. And here's the bottom line. Jesus died that all men might be saved. And no one will be cast out because God didn't love them or provide for them. Men will be cast out or left out because they chose the darkness instead of the light. He goes on to say he will declare justice to the Gentiles. I read it to you. That means that it was the Jew first and then to the Gentile. God didn't choose Israel to exclude the world, but as his witness to the world. And that's what he's chosen us for. Not because we're better than anyone else. We know better than that. But because God wants a living witness of his life-transforming power. That's what we've become. That's who we are in him. He goes on to say in verse 19, he will not quarrel nor cry out. That phrase cry out is an interesting one if you go back to the Greek because it spoke of a barking dog or a brawling drunk. And basically it's just saying Jesus isn't going to be out there barking at people and he's not going to be out there brawling with people. Now, sometimes we get the impression that Jesus is kind of mad or uptight. And we get that because people who claim to represent him seem that way. I remember a story of a little girl who was in church with her parents. And as they were leaving, she said, Mommy, why is that? Or Daddy, you know, why is that? That man's so mad at us. And they said, well, he's not mad at us, honey. He was just preaching God's word. He goes, well, why do you think he's mad? Well, he was yelling at us. Well, yeah, if people are yelling at you and veins are popping out, I don't know if you ever did it, I don't recommend it, but every once in a while, you know, you get one of those guys preaching on TV and just turn down the sound and watch. And it's just bizarre. It's like, and God. Except without sound, of course, you know. And, and you know it's got to be good news. You can't wait to turn up the sound and find out what joyous things he's trying to express. But the Bible's supposed to be good news. And hey, listen, it's bad news that people are going to hell, but even that bad news can be, well, it can be changed. It's, it's not a done deal. People can choose to come out of darkness into the light, and that's what we're exhorting and encouraging every time we get together. Jesus wasn't crying out. He wasn't barking at people. He wasn't accusing people. Now, he will get a little bit intense with some of the religious leaders. We're going to see that. But they are the only ones that Jesus ever had a harsh word for. Why? He said, you're not entering in and you're actually keeping people from entering in. I mean, it's one thing for them to choose to walk in darkness. It's another to say they were representing him and actually keeping people from the kingdom of God. Well, he goes on then yet one more time. It says, uh, he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will any hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. Two images there for us, the bruised reed and the smoking flax. Now, a bruised reed... Well, if you saw a reed and it was bruised, bent over, you'd think, well, things almost dead, worthless, useless, or useless. And then, uh, and then the smoking flax, well, that, that's just talking about a flame that's pretty much out. Maybe a spark there. Probably not worth really rescuing or redeeming, but that's not how Jesus saw people. And you need to know that these are pictures for us of people. When I read the 
bruised reed and a smoking flax, I immediately thought of, of that Samaritan woman that Jesus interacted with there at the well. And as she was blown away that he would even be in a conversation with her, Jesus tried to take her deeper. And, and ultimately, she went from asking, why would a Jew like you talk to me? I mean, Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. What's more, I mean, rabbis and women, it just doesn't happen. And, and then he's like, Let's get to some heart issues. And, and she ends up asking him about worship. Starts out a little bit cynical and standoffish, but ends up saying, hey, our fathers say it's here and you guys say it's Jerusalem. Where is it really supposed to happen? And he says, it's not about a place. Worship must be in spirit and in truth. He gets to the core and heart issues of life, worship of the true and living God, and that it's got to be in spirit and in truth. And then because he wants to draw her out, because she is a bruised reed and a smoking flax, he says, hey, listen, go get your husband. And she's like, oh, man, I don't have a husband. He goes, yeah, I know you've had five husbands. Was Jesus trying to put her down or rub salt in the wound? Not at all. What he was doing is said, I know what you've been through. I, I understand the depth of your sorrows and despair. Middle of the day, gathering water. Nobody did that. Everyone came in the cool of the day. That's when the gals got together and they fellowshiped and they talked and, and they got their water and they came and went together. But no, she was alienated from her community. She was a bruised reed. She was a smoking flax. And rather than crushing and putting her out, no, no, Jesus, he healed and ignited her. So much so that she goes into her town and says, hey, I've met a guy that told me all I ever did. Could he be? I mean, could he be? And they all came out to see. Then there was that woman caught in adultery. One of the most bizarre stories in all of scripture. And here's why. They come and they say, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. Moses said we're supposed to stone her. What do you say? And though Jesus doesn't mention it, I'm thinking, he's thinking, where's the guy, fellas? I mean, it is bizarre if you think it through. It said that Moses said they should stone them, not her. And where's the guy? And if she was caught in the act of adultery, how did they even know that was going on? And there are so many unanswered questions in that passage. But, but she too was a bruised reed and a smoking flax. She literally was about to have her light ignited. I mean, not ignited, but, you know, put out. They brought stones, by the way. They were ready to stone her. You weren't going to find any in the temple courts. It was too clean in there. They brought stones. They were ready to go. But Jesus says, well... All right, let the one who's never committed sin cast the first stone. Some have suggested that passage could be translated committed that sin, if not in act, at least in thought. But from the eldest to the youngest, they departed. So not only doesn't Jesus destroy, well, he didn't come to. He came to save. He came to redeem. He came to rescue. There's yet one more, and you could find many, many, but a wonderful illustration of this in the person of Simon Peter, and here's why. Simon means reed. Peter, of course, means rock. And Peter, after Jesus named him, always thought of himself as rocky. He was strong. He was stable. He was dependable. You can count on me, Jesus. That was Peter. But oftentimes, especially when something was going, well, not exactly as God intended... Jesus, rather than saying, hey, Peter, let's talk, he'd say, hey, Simon, kind of reminding him, I know what I called you and what I'm making you into, but let me tell you, you still look a lot like a reed to me. And truly, this reed would be bruised. 
Simon would deny his Lord three times. And he would get to the point where he swore and cursed and said, I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. And then that rooster would crow. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Why? He had said, listen, I know what what you're thinking. You're saying we're all going to forsake you. They may, Lord. I never will. You're saying we're all going to flake out on you. you. You just don't know me, Lord. See, that's the thing. I think sometimes we're, Lord, you don't know what you have here. No, he really knows what he has. You don't know what he's gotten. And gradually we're getting to see that the Bible tells the truth about us. Our hearts desperately wicked, depraved, apart from him. Man, we can do nothing of value, of worth. Well, a bruised reed, he won't break. No, he heals it. And smoking flax, he will not quench. No, he'll take that, that little spark and he'll fan it into flame. So Peter, who denies him, who weeps bitterly, restored by him, used mightily, that's his plan and purpose for you as well. And if you find yourself in the place where you thought maybe a little more of, you, of yourself than you should, the Lord will bring you back to reality. He will humble you. In fact, young Christians go through this experience, and many of you have had it, many of you even recently, because I know a lot of you are young in the Lord. You get saved and you think, you know, I know I was a sinner, but compared to my friends, I'm actually not that bad. And you sort of think maybe there's just something about you that caused God to look at your whole peer group and say, well, that's about the best I'm going to do. And then he took you. <laughs> and you think, well, you know, of course they're worse and I'm better. And But then you begin to actually read and study and grow in Christ and you realize, man, I'm way worse than I thought. Or you have some huge failure. And we do from time to time stumble and, and fall and fail. And when that happens, we think, oh my gosh, I wonder if I'm even a Christian at all. I mean, how could this happen? And here's the good news. God always knew that was going to happen. Did he want it to happen? No. Did he want Peter to fail? No. Did he want him to deny him? No. Was it necessary? Yes. And God doesn't want you to fail either. He doesn't want you to falter. He certainly doesn't want you to deny him. But... If it's necessary for you to come to humility and realize that, that you're not any better than anyone else. If you're a believer, you're better off than a lot of people. Definitely better off, but not better than. And that's what Peter had to learn. And, and, and here's what's so wonderful about our Lord. He let Peter go through that, even prophesied it was going to happen. At one point, you know, he said, Peter, Satan desires to sift you as wheat. And I would think that, you know, there's a bit of a pause there. And Peter's thinking, yeah, but you're not going to let that happen, are you, Lord? And then he says, and when you've recovered, when you've come back, what? What are you talking about, Lord? You mean the Lord let Satan sift Peter? Oh, yeah. Why? Because that was going to get away, do away with all the chaff. And what was going to be left was just the wheat. See, Satan comes to destroy. The Lord comes to nurture, to heal, to bless, to transform, to use. Well, ultimately the victory's his, and you should know that. Now, they brought one near to him there in verse 22, who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him so the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Now, you would think a miracle like this is going to be cut 
become a serious reason for rejoicing among all of God's people. I mean, here's a guy who is helpless and hopeless, and Jesus has just changed everything. He's freed from the demon. He can see. He can speak. His life is changed completely. And the people begin to wonder in amazement, could this be the son of David? That's a messianic title, by the way. They're asking, could this be the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior? But I want to show you that those same guys who were plotting Jesus' extermination, who were looking for a way to to have him wiped out, they make one of the bizarrest, most bizarre, if bizarrest isn't correct English, accusations concerning Jesus that you find in all of Scripture. This fellow, they say, the Pharisees having heard it, does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Now, this is a bit irrational, you'll give me that, and it's certainly absurd. They're they're basically saying, you're you're doing all this by Satan's power. You're, You're working for Satan. Yeah, that's it. He's working for the enemy. And these guys actually convinced themselves somehow that these wonderful works of God prophesied in the Old Testament as signs that Messiah would be in their midst. I mean, these were the signs that validated his ministry. And they come to the bizarre conclusion that, ah, it must be Satan. It must be the enemy. Jesus must be working for and, and empowered by the enemy. He's doing his work through the power of the devil. Now, before we see Jesus' response to all of this, let me tell you just a little, little bit about the difference between the enemy of our souls and the savior of our souls. Satan comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. Jesus came that we might have life eternal and life abundant. Satan is about death, and Jesus is about life. Satan comes to discourage and disqualify. Have you ever felt discouraged in your walk with the Lord? you got to know some of that might be natural, but some of that is supernatural. Why? Because the moment you falter and fail, the enemy is whispering in your ear, look at you. Can you believe it? What, what are you? How could you after all the Lord's done for you? I mean, before you were ignorant, but now you know. And, 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 and the enemy's just right there discouraging you, right there accusing you. By the way, those are two things the Lord never does. Why? He knows we're discouraged enough. And he certainly knows we don't need him to accuse us. He doesn't come to discourage, nor to accuse, nor to condemn. No, he came to encourage, to edify, to build up, to give us hope, to give us life. Satan comes to disqualify us for ministry. See, he knows something that not every believer knows. And once you get to know it, then that sort of makes this whole thing work better. Satan knows he can never have you. If you are truly a believer in Jesus Christ, I mean, you've really given your life to him. You belong to him. Satan knows you are God's property. The Bible says you were bought with a price. And that price was costly. We weren't redeemed with corruptible things were told like silver and gold from our aimless conduct received by tradition from our fathers, but with the precious blood of that sinless, spotless lamb, our Lord died and bled for us, shed his blood for the remission of our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins. And Satan gets it. 
He knows you belong to the Lord, if in fact you do. And so what does he want to do? He wants to make you an impotent Christian spiritually. He doesn't want you to be able to reproduce yourself spiritually. He doesn't want you to exhibit the love and the joy and the peace that is supposed to be a part of this salvation package. So if he can keep you fixed on yourself and fixated with yourself, and and it's like all you're doing and all your failures or even all your successes, well then ultimately you're either going to be proud and going to need to be humbled or you're going to be discouraged and you're going to need to be lifted up. But the Lord comes to give us life. Think about that. Jesus did not come to condemn us. And if you're dealing with condemnation or guilt, remember that scripture tells us that God is not the author of confusion. The first step toward freedom from this is realizing that the condemnation is not coming from God. Confession and repentance will always lead to the same place, forgiveness. But the enemy will always do his best to confuse you and get you to forget that. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.